gentlemen, welcome to Socrates in the City. Uh, I have to say that uh, this is a particularly wonderful Socrates in the City because I get to have a conversation with a, a character named Christian Wyman. Perhaps you've read about him. Anybody here of, of Christian Wyman? He'll be showing up any minute, and um, I'm just going to get to ask him anything I want. That's, uh, those are the ground rules. I didn't tell him that, but, uh, but those are the ground rules. A couple of things before we start. Our format is a little bit different from what we uh, normally uh, have. Uh, in fact, we're going to be doing more Socrates events that are conversations between two people, and I often will be just one of those two people, just in case you're worried about that. But um, we're going we're gonna to be doing that, and tonight I, I've read uh, Christian's book, uh, My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer, and it is a, um, it's prose poetry is what it is, which is a coincidence because he's a poet, but it's um, what I would like to think of as lapidary prose. Uh, it is just the kind of thing, you could inscribe most of the sentences on granite and nobody would look at you funny. Uh, very impressive, very thoughtful. Uh, I came upon um, the story of um, Christian Wyman in this book, I guess it was in the New Yorker magazine, and, uh, and then everywhere I turned, it seemed, I found uh, more uh, stories on him. I even opened up the Yale Alumni Magazine, which they keep sending to me, even though I've never sent them a dime, and by God's grace, I'll never send them a dime. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I have to tell you that um, uh, there it was, uh, and then I discovered that uh, Christian uh, is going to be teaching at Yale this fall. He's already moved his family to New Haven, uh, and he just took the train from New Haven to New York. I think he's in the room. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Christian Wyman. Uh, Christian, really, I just, I can't spend the next hour gushing, but I'm going to try. You can start. It's, you can start uh, I, oh, I can start. Oh, that was good. That was good. Uh, I really do uh, have to say that um, your book is unlike anything I've ever read, um, at least uh, written by a contemporary writer or contemporary poet. Um, it, um, it really is the sort of thing that uh, you want to read with a, with, a, with a pencil. There's just a lot of thought in there. Um, before I begin asking you questions, I, I want to say up front that uh, Christian uh, is himself a poet and was the um, editor, was, right? Because you're no longer. I think I'm editor for 36 more hours. For, for another yeah. day, is that right? Okay, yeah. well, is currently, uh, wow, I'm glad we got you in time. Yeah. Um, is currently, still is, the editor of the extremely prestigious and I would say almost overly well-endowed poetry magazine. See, they don't understand that joke. Let me explain that. <laughs> Poetry Magazine, uh, that was not a vulgar joke. We don't tell those kinds of jokes at Socrates that we know of. It was a joke because a few years ago, uh, Poetry Magazine got a gift. This was all over the New York Times. Uh, this is a small poetry magazine, and they got a gift of $200 million. Now they get the joke. <laughs> Let me try that again. Almost overly well-endowed poetry magazine. Um, and so uh, Christian uh, was tasked with spending that money on poetry. And we just don't have time to ask you about that. But that's just, uh, it's just in in incredible. It's another story. It's another story. Uh, so, but so yes. So what, what really struck me with your story and with this tremendous book, which I hope everyone will get a copy of this evening, um, was that you are a particularly thoughtful person. Uh, you are a 
really terrific poet, and I, if you knew how much I hated contemporary poetry, you'd be especially flattered and <laughs> blessed by that. Um, the idea that you had somehow uh, began to, had somehow begun to struggle and deal with faith of some sort, it, it, it's, it's a gripping story. I don't want to tell that story, but I do want to ask you, my first question is to say, what, um, what happened? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, you know, it, it is, it's very strange to me to find myself talking about faith to groups of audiences around the country as I am doing these days. It, for a number of years, I, I thought it was strange to be talking about poetry, given my background. Um, it is strange. Yeah, yeah, this seems even stranger. I mean, I, I came from um, a small town in West Texas called Snyder. It's in far West Texas. It's about 10,000 people. And I grew up in a house with no books. And um, my only real aesthetic experience when I was growing up was religion. Uh, I, I, I came from a culture that was saturated in faith. And uh, for all of the uh, negative things that you could say about that faith, and you know, don't get me started, um, there are a lot of positive things that you could say as well. One is the sort of enveloping world that it gives childhood, and another is the kind of imaginative flair uh, and risk and uh, uh, mercurial nature that it gives childhood. Uh, the sense that reality is permeated with uh, something more than itself, that, that something else is always there. Terrence Malick does a wonderful job of showing this in his movies. That, that, that recent movie, Tree of Life, where he shows, those of you who have seen that, he shows a family in Central Texas, Waco, Texas, I believe. Uh, and those scenes are among the most beautiful things I've ever seen because he shows the way in which our lives, all of our lives, you don't have to be in a rural environment, are shot through with moments of timelessness. Uh, I don't think you have to be a necessarily religious person to feel that in your life, certainly. I left that place when I was 18, 17, and took off in my Trans Am and drove up uh, uh, to a little school in Virginia, which was all male at the time, called Washington and Lee University. When I was there, I didn't even visit the school. Uh, it was all male, which I somehow didn't, hadn't, I hadn't, I apprehended that when I got there. It was the only school to which I applied. Uh, it was the only school that sent me stuff in the mail. I didn't take any of those college entrance course things like the SAT. I didn't take those things. I didn't know about it. It was a different time. Um, and that was a different world. And I got there and my faith fell away, uh, uh, you know, like a change of clothing. It, it fell away so easily. Um, I, I remember, I distinctly remember the first atheist that I met and, um, and him telling me just, you know, as, as casually as he would, you know, announce a culinary preference or something that, uh, that he, was, he didn't believe in God. And, and I thought that he would be struck dead, you know, he could have been, he could have started swiveling his head around. I would have been, <laughs> been uh, uh, no more surprised. Um, but it all fell away for me, and it, it fell away for a number of years. And I would never have called myself an unbeliever, but I would, have called my, I, would have, I would have told you I didn't really believe in God, per se. I don't meet many poets or artists of any sort uh, who are really sort of dogmatic unbelievers. They all um, 
they all seem to have some susceptibility to something outside themselves that uh, gives them some sympathy to, if not religion per se, at least the, the, the world of the spirit. Um, so for years, my only connection to call it spiritual life was art. And, and I gave myself over to making poems and lived all around the world. I just would kind of move around to places where I could uh, manage to write poems. And I, I want to cut you off for a second here. I want to get back to the Camaro. No, Trans Am. No, that's, that's There's a, a big joke. difference, a man. Oh, Trans Am. <laughs> awesome. Um, no, I want to cut you off for a minute. You just you, you talk about falling into writing poetry. I don't want to blow your mind, but there are a lot of non-poets in the room, <laughs> and uh, most people don't fall into writing poetry. <laughs> and uh, I want to ask you a little bit. I mean, you, you just make it seem so natural. Um, how, how did you fall in? To writing poetry. Yeah, no, I know most people don't. It's worth Did you want to do that when you were in high school? When you, when you, when yeah. you were in high school, did yeah. you know you wanted to write poems? No, but I was writing when I was a little kid. I was writing things when I was a little kid. And, and, uh, um, and in fact, uh, this is not anywhere in my book. I've never written about this, I believe. But the first poem I ever published was when I was seven years old. And I wrote um, a little poem. We were, going, we were living in Dallas, Texas. We were going to the First Baptist Church in Dallas. And which at the time was the largest Baptist church in the world. I don't know if that's still true, but uh, I, it's, I got up out of my seat when they, you know, they have those altar calls, ask for people to come to be saved. I got up out of my seat, and this is sort of exemplifies my entire life as a, as a, as a sort of my, the conflict between my artistic life and my religious life, is that I go to the altar call. My parents don't know what the hell's going on. You know, I'm, I'm seven years old, going down the aisle, and... and um, and you know they probably thought it was great that I was getting saved. And uh, but in fact, what I did was hand the preacher a poem that I had written, <laughs> and, uh, and then and then turned around and ran back up the aisle. Is and, this the, the poem about the the chickens and the wheelbarrow after? That's the right. Yeah. Now the poem was, "I love the Lord, and the Lord loves me. I will not forget, and neither will He." Nice little rhyme. Nice little rhyme. Um, did anybody say yeah. we have a budding poet in our midst? The poem was published in the Southern Baptist Newsletter. Wow. So it's probably Can my biggest publication. You mind saying that again? It's, beautiful. it's actually, I mean, you like e that, even if you had written it today, it would be, I think, uh, wonderful. But the idea that you wrote it when you were seven, say it one more time. I love the mind. Lord and the Lord loves me. No, I love the Lord and he loves me. I will not forget and neither will he. Very cute. very cute. It is. It's very cute. But yeah, I went to college to get rich. Um, I went to. I was an economics major, and uh, I was. I had, was tired of being poor. I'd seen what being poor was like. I'd had it, and um, uh, and so I set out uh, in those economics courses. And man, I was bored. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I hear you, bro. I, I couldn't. <laughs> I was an English major, so I'm, I'm, with you. I'm down with that boredom stuff. Um, but I did that until, you know, I took an English course uh, at some point, my sophomore year or something. It was just a requirement. And I started reading poetry for the first time ever. And, uh, and that was really it. That was really, I remember reading very clearly. I got this fellowship to go over to Oxford my junior year, just for part of the year. And, and I bought a, a selection of Yeats and Eliot. They were together, and um, 
and I remember sitting out there and reading those things and, and, and just being intoxicated by the sounds of them, just the, just the music of the, of the language. Uh, but this was new to you in college. You had not been raised in that kind of a No, home. no, no. Yeah, it was completely new. I didn't know that there were such a thing as living poets. You know, I didn't at all. Uh, yeah, and so I, yeah, I set out to, to be a poet. You know, cause it's, my, it's hardly a living. You're right, yeah. I, it did Thank not make you. me rich. Yeah. Uh, right. Wow. Right. So you just, you just fell into this. I, I mean, I, I, part of the reason I was so fascinated with your book and your stories is this parallels my story a little bit. Uh, I, I was not raised in a home where we read poetry. My parents were sitting in the front row, and they, they hate books and literature of every kind. <laughs> they forced me to watch Sanford and Son, and, uh, and uh, God has somehow healed that, and we're in our lives. But, uh, but anyway... But that, that's pretty interesting to me that you just discovered on your own this love for poetry. And, and um, I, I mean, that's where I had interrupted you. I don't mean to, to make you digress, but I think just to explain that, you know, you are a full-blown poet. You've been not only successful as a poet, but you've been uh, charged with editing, as I mentioned, this tremendously prestigious and important poetry magazine. So, um, okay, so where, where, where were you in the story? I don't remember. I don't remember either, but I can pick up somewhere. That, um, but I, I was curious so, what it was that, um, so you were sort of floating along in a world where you didn't really know anyone who knew anyone who um, was the kind of a Christian that you'd been raised, but at the same time you said artists are open to something beyond themselves. Exactly, yeah. And I would have conversations with people at times, always artists, um, very secular artists, uh, about matters of faith, but it was very easy to talk to them because we all would easily denigrate people who had faith. Um, we all agreed that they were idiots. Uh, Be careful, uh, several of those idiots are in this room. I'm, I'm one of those people now. I'm one of those people. No, I mean real idiots. <laughs> oh. not, just, not just people of faith. I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is Rich here? Look. Uh, yeah, it took several things for me to. Uh, there's a there's a narrative that's told about me, and and that I when I read these stories in the press that you mentioned that, um, and I've probably contributed to that with things that I've written, uh, where I had a sudden turn back to, to to God, and my life completely changed. I didn't really believe in the notion of conversions. I don't really believe it happens like that. I believe. The way that I talk about it in the book is that I finally assented to a faith that had long been latent within me. That it, it was a matter of simply turning towards something that was already there. Uh, letting it disclose itself within me. And uh, uh, there were, however, some real shocks. Uh, I, I, as I said, I had set out my whole life uh, to write poems. And I, mean, I wrote other things too. I wrote a lot of prose, but but my passion was in writing poems. Could, could you could you keep it down? I want to hear those people in the hall. <laughs> Just hang on a second. Hold on. Give them a chance. Give them a chance. All right, that's enough. Thank you. All right. So I had. Um, <laughs> uh, I at, at some point. It was, it was actually before I took over the editorship of poetry, I found myself unable to write at all. And I've gone through long droughts in the past uh, uh, years. 
but um, this was the first one that actually stretched, I guess, longer than a year. This, this went for three years. So you were teaching during this time? I moved to Chicago to teach at Northwestern. Um, and then I uh, uh, was there for one year and uh, uh, got the job at Poetry Magazine. So that started uh, 10 years ago. I was at, I was at Poetry Magazine for 10, exactly 10 years. Um, so I couldn't write anything at all. And, and it was, uh, I was in a deep depression uh, because of that. It, 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 uh, I just couldn't perceive the world around me. I'd always, I mean, any artist will tell you this. They don't, you don't make art because you have an idea and then you want to express it. You make art because it's the way you translate your experience. It's the only way that you're able to be in the world. And other, if you don't have that, it's like having your language taken away. You go mute. And, and all those things that, you, that, would, that would ordinarily come out of you are, are sort of impacted and corrosive and, and, and they begin to eat at you. And, and that's what happened to me. And, and then I met the woman who's now my wife. We've been married almost 10 years. And, and I fell in love very, it was very sudden. And we were married for about seven months. And then I got a really bad diagnosis. Uh, a, a really bad cancer, which is a long story, but I won't tell the whole thing, but, but it, it, it led to a bone marrow transplant and the whole real, really long number of years of difficulties. And all of that shocked me in such a way that I needed to give a form to my faith. Uh, I knew when I met my wife, Danielle, that that I had some kind of faith, some kind of access to life that I hadn't had before. And we would even find ourselves, I talk about this in the book, sometimes saying prayers at night, uh, uh, even though neither of us had done this in years, and it was bizarre for us to do it. We felt very self-conscious doing it, uh, but we found ourselves doing it uh, before our meals at night. Um, and this was before the diagnosis. Um, but then after that, we needed, I needed some form for the faith. Uh, uh, and so I began going to a church that was just up the street, a United Church of Christ, UCC church. Um, Did that feel awkward yeah. for you? I mean, just oh, again, coming awkward. from the world yeah, in awkward. which you, you were swimming there, it's just not the thing to do to go to church. But you felt awkward, yet you did it anyway. It was at once, I mean, incredibly awkward. Uh, um, I still feel awkward in church. I still feel uh, ill at ease, and I, just the way, I actually felt that way in childhood. I was bored out of my skin in childhood, and and uh, um, you know, church is often very boring. It, uh, it depends. So much of Protestantism depends on the preacher. Uh, it's a real problem. We could talk about it another time, but uh. well, that's really why uh, you should go to Redeemer. Tim Keller's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Is he here? No. <laughs> I've lost my train of thought, but... Uh, <laughs> That's my job. Yeah. Um, you, you, you pick it up here. You, um, well, you just did say you, you began... I mean, it sounds to me, again, this book, you, there's so much in there. It's so dense. It's like a fruitcake in a good way. Uh, <laughs> it is very dense. There's just a lot there, and yet there's a narrative. And in this narrative, you, you talk about this. It's, it's sort of a, it's a fitful... Um, if, if, if drifting towards something can be fitful, I don't know, but... Um, it doesn't seem, in other words, you don't have a conversion. In fact, even now, as I read the book and you, you talk about your faith, it's, it's a just a very interesting kind of faith. It's not typical, but it sounds like that, that was 
that was the process. And it was you, you and your wife somehow, oddly, were, were compelled towards something, but it doesn't sound like you really knew what. Yeah, I mean, she would say very different things. She, I mean, she would talk, and she also talks about her faith in a very different way than I do. So it's not the same. Uh, she has much less anguish than I do. I have, I, I have a, uh, what, is she, is what she are you going to say? Or an economist, what is she? No, she's, I wish she were an economist. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's a, <laughs> no, she's a poet, she's a poet. Um, but I, I, I feel like I never felt the pain of unbelief until I began to believe. I mean, all of those years when I uh, um, didn't really think of God, when it was sort of this you know, little slight noise maybe in the background, uh, it didn't really bother me at all. I mean, I was enjoying my life like everybody else, going through my life, and it didn't bother me. Um, you know, people think that there's a there's this traumatic event and that, and that, that causes you to some, somehow, uh, it slices into you and it, it, it blares at you and it says, change your life. And that's actually not my experience. In my experience, when you have some real trauma like that and somebody says, hey buddy, you're gonna die, uh, what happens is, is the world goes quiet. And what you realize is that you walk, it's like Ulysses, it's like Joyce's Ulysses. It, it, what, that book is the tumult of one man's mind during the course of one day. And you, our minds, the, gr the greatness of that book is he makes you feel the noise of your mind all the time. It's just going, 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 going. You never stop it. You never stop it. Well, when you're told you're going to die, it stops like that. And suddenly it is deadly quiet. And, and you can suddenly hear things that you couldn't hear before. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty profound experience. There's a Jewish theologian whose name I'm forgetting, a scholar who, who actually has written something about this and traces it all the way back to how the word was delivered to humans. Uh, but that, that was my experience uh, during that time. I want to read um, Marilyn um, Robinson, uh, has, uh, author of Gilead, has praised um, your book, actually it's Mary Carr, who's, I want to, there's a quote. She says that your spiritual ancestors are C.S. Lewis and Thomas Merton. Like Lewis, uh, he, meaning you, is surprised by the joy of falling in love. And like Merton, he captures the smugness that can poison some atheists as it does some believers. And I thought there were a couple of parts in your book where you're talking about your faith. And it was just fascinating that you were thinking, you, what, you, what you seem to do throughout the book is you look at faith so sharply, so clearly, that you can see where faith itself can roll over into a kind of smugness, in a kind of something dogmatic. Um, but, uh, you know, there are many people who are, who are making that kind of observation uh, in, in our culture. I mean, it's the, the endless noise of, you know, that, that uh, people of faith are stupid. Uh, but, but in your careful analysis of this thing that you call faith, you, you also talk about rolling in the other way, the idea who people who are somehow uh, proud um, about, well, you actually, you, you wrote about it, but, but somehow that there's a, there can be a pride in uh, not knowing, a kind of strange, self-exalting pride in saying, well, I, I don't know, or, or whatever. And I, I, 
You write about that a lot in the book. I mean, it seems yeah. like on every other page. Yeah, that's a real tension for me. You know, the, the, the saying these days is I'm spiritual but not religious. And, uh, and, and that it's a sort of an out. Uh, I mean, I would have said it myself. I wouldn't have uttered the words, but I understand them completely. Uh, um, uh, it, it is a sort of out in a way. And as I said, until you get something that confronts you, that makes your life demand some sort of uh, structure, uh, it's fine to sort of free float around without a creed, let's say. But then you need a creed. Then suddenly you need something, something fixed. Uh, I think it's easy to become, particularly for artists maybe, but, but maybe for others as well, um, you can find that the energy of your art comes from uh, absence or destitution. Emily Dickinson has a wonderful phrase, sumptuous destitution. Uh, the notion of, of death, and you mentioned Marilyn Robinson, she has uh, her books, uh, her housekeeping is my favorite of her books, for need, need can blossom into all the compensation it requires for when do we know anything so utterly as when we lack it. Here again is the foreshadowing, the world will be made whole. She goes on and on and talks, it's this absolutely beautiful passage at the, near the end of that book. Uh, but you can come, so, you can become, I have found so addicted to the energy of that absence that you don't ever let yourself feel the presence that's in your life. And uh, Marianne Moore very succinctly puts it, without my loneliness I would be more lonely, so I keep it. You know, it's perfect, perfect. That's uh, so profound I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, in a good way. Uh, I. You, you, you seem to vacillate in, in, in the book, I guess on your journey toward uh, the, the faith that you have, but also in the faith that you now have, uh, back and forth between saying you need some kind of a creed, but the moment you grab onto it too much, you kill it. How do you deal with that tension? I mean, that's all through the book, and I think that that's, it's important to look at that, and, and so I, I, I applaud you now and while I was reading it for, for being um, so rigorous in analyzing faith and again how it can roll this way or roll this way but how do you deal with that tension in other words if somebody says to you know do you believe x y and z yes or no you know do you believe in the bodily resurrection of jesus yes or no or doesn't it matter what you know there's so many questions like that that divide and i think that that division can be important it's important to know do i believe this or don't i or why do i believe this or maybe i shouldn't believe this but you seem to come out more in the book uh, in in talking about the idea that we, we don't want to grab dogma or creeds too much. It's kind of like uh, saying, what does a poem mean? And you say, well, if I could tell you what it meant, I wouldn't have had to write the poem. Right. So this, I didn't come up with that. So, uh, <laughs> but, but the idea that, you know, a creed or, or th th there's, a, there's, a, there's use for it, but it's limited and our faith shouldn't be limited to that. But how, how do you deal with that? Because I think it's so easy to err on either side of that, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think the great, uh, I mean, we live in a culture of reason. And I mean, we are uh, replicating the great age of reason. It, 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 the fallacy is that you're gonna think your way to something that you believe. You're gonna rationalize all of this, you're gonna figure it out, and then you're going to reach a point at which you can assent to it. You're going to come up with a set of logical propositions to which you can assent. And uh, Thomas Merton used to say that trying to solve the problem of God is like trying to see your own eyeballs. It doesn't work. Uh, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom you know intimately, said, said only he who obeys believes. That, 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 that belief comes after you make the motion of obedience. Uh, I talked before about um, feeling something not as, as if I was having some sort of great uh, turning in my life, a big conversion, but merely sort of assenting to something that had long been latent within me. Um, uh, I, I think uh, it is that subtle of an experience. I don't, I, I don't know how to um, resolve the tension between dogma and call it mysticism or an experiential religion. Uh, I find it to be a constant, a constant and very frustrating tension. But you uh, obviously feel that there, that there is a role uh, for creed or dogma, otherwise it becomes so attenuated that what, what is anyone talking about? Exactly, and how do you bind a community together? How do you, I mean, faith seems to me communal. It seems to me that any time that I, that I, uh, that my faith becomes purely personal, it leads me to despair. I find it going inward, inward, inward to despair. That I need, I need some other, I need other people around. That Christ is always stronger in our brother's heart than in our own. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, very, very powerful idea. If the word Christ bothers you, then just substitute something else for it. Uh, you could say maybe joy is always stronger in our brother's heart than in our own. There's, there's something that we need to see in other people in order for our experience to have validity. Uh, uh, but I find this to be a, a uh, frustrating, uh, endlessly difficult question. And I don't have an answer for it. And I don't run a church. Uh, you don't what? I don't run a church. Don't yeah. run a church. A lot of people who run churches don't run churches. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Um, when you say you're anguished, your wife's not so anguished. What, what do you, why are you anguished? I mean, my, my, um, my instinct is to think that you would be anguished in, in the same way that uh, I was and am anguished when I came to faith because most of the people in my universe would simply think I'm crazy. And so there's an anguish because you're trying to represent something, uh, but it's nearly impossible to, to explain. And so you're just, you're just kind of stuck. You, hmm. is, no, I mean, I, is that your anguish? No, I don't feel that. I, I'm not, I, I admit I'm bothered by that, but... Uh, I mean, I, I feel lonely sometimes among, because I, I live in a secular world uh, for the most part. Uh, I'm, although now I'm just joined the faculty of a divinity school, so that's about to change. But it's Yale Divinity School. <laughs> so have no fear. <laughs> there are. They would, there, they, would, they would argue that. There are one of two people that. of faith hiding, and I can, I can out them to you, I know. <laughs> Miroslav Wolf is a, is a type of Christian. Um, that's about it, I think. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, no, the anguish for me is simply not feeling God's presence. Uh, it's, it's simply not feeling it. Uh, it. It's being an unbeliever most of the time. Oh, okay, uh, now, so I want to stop you there. You're equating belief with feeling. Well, I mean, maybe I use my words imprecisely. Call it, call it faith, if that's better. I usually think of belief as having objects, the bodily resurrection of Christ or what have you. I think of faith as not having a definite object. It, that you can have a, a, be a person of faith and not necessarily be able to articulate what it is that you have faith in. Uh, belief seems to me to introduce the idea of objects. What, what do I believe in? 
Uh, does that clarify? But that? isn't it possible to believe in something bad? In other words, to, to, there are plenty of sure. people living in the world who, who have faith in something that is, um, you know, a bad thing to believe in. Sure. So you want to dissuade them of that faith. So you don't want to portray faith as just generally good. I mean, doesn't it have to have an object? What do you, what do you mean when you say it doesn't have an object? No, I don't think it has to have an object. Uh, unless you can somehow say that God is an object. I mean, God is, in the way that Simone Weil said we must believe in God in every way possible except that he does not exist because we have not reached the point at which he might exist. Uh, somehow God has not, we, we have not come to the point at which we can perceive what God. Uh, uh, By the way, so that's knew. a kind of objectlessness. Yeah. I mean, she was a, she was a, a, a Jew who never quite converted to Catholicism, um, could never bring herself to convert to Catholicism, a great writer, great writer. I recommend Gravity and Grace if you haven't. Little book of mostly aphorisms collected after her death. Um, How do you pronounce her name again? Vey. W-E-I-L. I've never known until this moment. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> I can spell it, but I can't pronounce it. Um, well, I still think, I mean, when you talk about faith, so it's not a transitive verb, doesn't need an object. I mean, what? Well, what is I think a lot of people use it that way. But I would like, in my own life, this is the way that I've defined it. Try to define it for myself. That uh, that yeah, I think you can have faith without an object. I do, I, and I think there can even be Christians who have faith without an object. That they do not. They find it. They find themselves incapable of believing in, say, the dogma that you get in churches. I, I find well, but I mean, there's good dogma and there's bad dogma, there's good dogma and so bad, sure, but you know, but isn't it our job to determine, you know, if it's good or bad before we give ourselves to it? You don't just want to believe in something because you're told to believe in it. At some point, obviously, you you, you want to determine that this is actually true or I think this is true. Um, but there are plenty of people believing bad things. I mean, I think, well, and you point that out in your book, actually. Well, I'm, I I guess there, you we could draw a distinction between noble ways of being, let's say, let's say calling, uh, being in abeyance, uh, having faith in abeyance, or being something like that, um, and ignoble ways. Uh, or, or, or I think a writer like Simone Weil, and I think a lot of the artists that I know, are people of faith. I don't know how else to describe them. But they're certainly not Christians, and they're not Orthodox Jews, and they're not Buddhists, and they're not Muslims. And so I'm really reluctant to say that they have bad faith. They, they seem to me to be living lives that are exemplary in some way. They apply themselves to something uh, that seems to me mystical and full of meaning. And, and, um, would they describe it as faith? Yes. Oh, yeah. They would describe it as faith. But the minute you introduce a religion, it all falls apart. We did how, how's we, it different from saying you're, I'm spiritual but not religious? Isn't that? I don't think effect, it is different, really. I, th okay. I think I think that's what I mean. I think there are people who can. I mean that that phrase has been ruined. Uh, you know, it's sort of become laughable in the culture. But there are people who live that way. What I, that's what I meant. Yeah. The distinction I meant to draw. Who live that way honorably, and there are others who don't. There can be a kind of okay. rigorous okay. spirituality, and there can be a kind of flaccid spirituality. Is it possible that that kind of faith without an object could lead to faith with an object? That's probably the hope. That was certainly Simone Weil's hope. 
Uh, I know that's my hope. I mean, that's always, uh, I feel mostly that I live in that state of faith without an object. I'm constantly trying to articulate to myself what it is I believe in. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of people have, go through this. Uh, I have a sentence in that book that um, I can't tell whether this is, a, this is a, something I'm called to or this is some fundamental pride in myself. Uh, that um, I say that sometimes we're called to unbelief. Sometimes God calls a person to unbelief in order that faith can take new forms. Uh, maybe that's true. I mean, I wrote it. Maybe it's. <laughs> I don't know if I have to believe in it. Um, you know, maybe it's true at one point, and maybe at another point, it's pure pride. I'm not sure. You um, you you talk about the centrality of God to being fully human and you say someplace that um, that in a way loving God or knowing God is a precursor to fully being able to love other people or maybe even said loving Christ and some of your friends or someone was put off by that and I think a lot of people would be put off by that Um, I would be put off by that I'm put off by it now (laughs) let's end this I'm appalled Uh, so um, but I guess, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And I, and I, I suspect maybe you, you talk about your own suffering and about Christ being in the midst of suffering. Uh, that seems to be a big part of y- your own faith. Is it, re- is it related to, to that idea? Uh, no. Strike no, two I for me. I don't think so. I think, I think that, that idea, the notion that you can't really experience the love of other people until you've experienced the love of God, uh, or, or divine love leads to human love. It's not mine. It's from a Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar. And, and the reviewer in the New York Times attributed it to, to me. And, uh, and so there was you know, well, some you know, confusion. The Times isn't really big on this religion stuff. Right. <laughs> right. They get a lot of stuff wrong. But so they're, the, they're but there in was process. Some they're seeking. Yeah. Um, okay. But no, I don't believe that. So it was that. Hans it and not you. It seems a ridiculous idea. Well, it's not ridiculous if you think, I mean, if you think that all goodness comes of God and that everything that's good is of God, then the love that two human beings share, whether they know God on any level, that that if there's anything good in that love, it is of God. Uh, But they just wouldn't articulate it that way. I I was wondering if that's what you were getting at in saying that. I'm, not, I'm just not sure why you said that, but it seemed very important that your love for your wife and, and this, this process somehow were related. Well, that's what I, in my own life, I never uh, experienced divine love uh, until I ex- fully experienced human love. Uh, it's the reverse of Balthazar's uh, idea. Um, uh, I understand what you're saying, but that seems to me perilously close to saying that someone can be a Christian without knowing it, like Albert Camus or something. That he was, you know, he, he was a, he's someone I admire enormously. Great writer, seems to me. Uh, um, uh, and, and people have said, oh, Camus, and, he, and also a very noble moral, moral person. And everybody says, oh, Camus, maybe, you know, he was one of those Christians without knowing it. Carl Rahner used to have that phrase, not specifically, but for Camus, but, but for others. And I think that's a dangerous thing to say because it's sort of a, you know, you're, you're saying, oh, Camus didn't know his own mind. You know, he didn't know, you know, we, we can be above him and, say, and see maybe something overarching, but I don't, 
I just think I, I wouldn't do that. You sure? <laughs> um, well, this gets into really deep stuff. I'd like to keep it a little more shallow, so okay. hang on a That's second. You say you you do you do in your in your book. Uh, I mean, you seem to kind of go back and forth, but but then you a couple of places clearly say that you feel that not just God is important, but somehow Christ is important. Um, that's like a deal breaker for, for most people, I think. Yeah. God can be non-threatening, sort of an energy force that lets me do what I like, and um, and then when you get to that Christ thing, now ah, now suddenly you've gone from spirituality into religion or something unpleasant or dogmatic. And why do you? Why does it have to be that for you? Unless you're, you know, Deepak Chopra, who can uh, make talk about Christ consciousness, <laughs> which is just as meaningless as you know God. And so, um, so I assume you're not talking about Christ consciousness, but you're talking about that was more Henry Kissinger. I apologize, but um, he. You, you do talk about the centrality of Christ, and that's the, um, you know, that's the big one hanging out there. What do you, what do you, uh, what do, you do with that? Yeah, for me, I, I, I guess I have a couple of answers. Uh, no doubt, if I were raised, had been raised somewhere else, I wouldn't talk about Christ so much. Uh, um, uh, you, you have to speak the language that you've been given. Uh, uh, it, 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 there's a wonderful theologian, George Lindbeck, who says you, you can no more be religious in general than you can speak language in general. Mm. It just doesn't work like that. You've got to have a language. And my language is Christianity. And, and I could change it, uh, but according to Lindbeck, I could maybe learn the language of Buddhism or I could learn the language of Juda Judaism to name two things that I'm very attracted to, two, two cultures which really interest me. Uh, 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 but I would always have a really strong accent. Uh, and you would know it, and it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really fit. Uh, um, but, they, but you do make it sound, I mean, it seems like you're having it both ways, because if it's just a language, I mean, at the end of the day, a word is a word, so I can translate a word into German or French, but it's still, we're talking about something specific. And, and in other words, if, if you, if, if belief in Christ becomes so attenuated as to, mean nothing it's just a language you know that that's I mean that's part of why I think the historicity of biblical faith is important it's not the only thing but but it's important because otherwise it does become so attenuated that it becomes hopelessly vague so I, don't I know. agree that, that's I I, it's absolutely important within my religion uh, uh, but do I believe that uh, a Hindu person needs to convert to Christianity I do not and nor would I try to convert that person. Do you think that uh, there's anybody out there who needs to convert to Christianity or to anything? In other words, because again, they're, they're, I do. they're positing oh, yes. the idea that there are, there are good things you know, beyond the Christian faith, but there are also bad things, and how does one begin to make those distinctions? Oh, I think Christ is calling people all the time, uh, and calling people who don't have any experience of him. Uh, I think it's... it's uh, can be a very difficult thing to hear um, and takes some real effort to hear sometimes. You have to learn to hear it. But yes, I do indeed think that uh, uh, Christ is crucial uh, to faith, cr cr absolutely crucial to my faith, to all, any notion I have of God, uh, which is God made human and suffering as, as we suffer. Um, uh, but I will not translate that into, into uh, um, 
some absolute notion uh, that excludes other people, that it excludes, it seems to me wrong. I believe Christ is present in every permutation of reality that we know. I believe Christ is present in Hinduism, present in Buddhism, present everywhere. Uh, but I don't think that people have to turn their lives over to him in the way that conservative Christianity teaches. Uh, uh, or even the, even the liberal Protestant churches that I go to, maybe they teach it too. I just, uh, it, it may be why I'm a bad spokesman for Christianity. <laughs> but there you have it. You're pretty bad. Uh, now look, what's interesting is I think you'd be surprised. I think a lot of conservative Christians would agree uh, quietly with most of what you're saying because I think they've begun to see the limits of certain kinds of expressions that they see more tribalistic or more, I mean, what I couldn't help, and I don't think it's just because you're a poet, but in your book, you, you, what we're talking about is going back and forth between sort of a noun sense of the world and a verb sense of the world, right? And artists are into process and verb, and that's sort of more feminine, and then the kind of patriarchal, you know, dogma, truth with a capital T, it's more noun. And what you're saying, which I certainly think is true, is that real faith is both, um, and that uh, if you, uh, you know, the Pharisees famously, they were, they were legalists, you know, mm -hmm. and Jesus kept uh, rebuking them pretty harshly and saying that, yeah, you're getting all that stuff right, and yet you're totally wrong. Yeah. And it's fascinating that you can get all that stuff right and be totally wrong. As far as God's concerned, um, it's pretty scary, but they, they were not willing to, you know, shift their paradigm. Let's, yeah. let's put it that yeah. way. And I think that, that, but I think that's exactly the case. That's exactly where we are today. At, you know, n nothing is new. And, but in your book, you, you, you just so beautifully deal with that. And I think, you know, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I don't see anyone really talking about that as bravely as, as you've done. Because you're not trying to be, you know, you're not quote unquote Bishop John Spong or somebody who's openly heretical. Is, is John here? Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, and, uh, but I just, um, it, it's interesting, because at the end of the day, you're flirting with what's perceived as heresy. Oh, yeah. And, and Bonhoeffer talked about that. That's one of the reasons I love Bonhoeffer, is that it's this idea that we're talking about truth. And so uh, we have to be free to explore what is truth and, uh, and, and have to be careful. And it doesn't mean that one plus one ever equals two. And yet, um, we, we want to be... Uh, we, we want to be careful not to pretend that the whole world uh, revolves around statements and, and tenets of faith, that there's more to it. And I just, I really think you do that so brilliantly, and um, uh, I'm very happy that, you, that you've written about this. What's the reaction been to the book? Because I, uh, I Yeah, the, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Honestly, I, did, I wrote this book, um, I mean, I've been attacked some, some places, but mostly it's been very positive. Uh, I think I think the New York Times it was a very snarky, itchy, it was a snarky. an itchy yeah. kind of snarky uh, review. Yeah, but still, what do you mean? <laughs> it was fine. I mean that that it got reviewed in the Times. That they're reviewing a book of religion in the Times. You know, a book on religion. You know, uh, it. I was glad it was there. I, I I was very upset with that one aspect of the review, but I'm overwhelmed with the number of people contacting me. I can't quite handle it. Um, well, so the review, I just have to say, the review in the Times, there were parts of it that were utterly stupid. And I, I say that in love. Uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's really, 
you know, it makes you cringe when you read something. You just say, I know this is stupid because I know what more about what he's talking about than what he's talking about. You know, he, he comp what he, comp he compares you to? Joel Osteen. To Joel, Joel Osteen. Osteen. Right. I mean, I thought, wow. <laughs> was he like on deadline and he just didn't have time to, you know. That was, t anyway, it just needs he to hadn't be seen said my head. how tremendously snarky and, and, and ridiculous some of that stuff was. But anyway, but most of the response has been, yeah, the response has been overwhelming. And there's, a, there's a poet, Mark Strand, here in the city, once said, uh, someone asked him, you know, what it was like being a famous poet, and he said, it's like being, it's like being famous in your family. Yes. And, uh, uh, it's a kind of private fame. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and you write a nonfiction book, and suddenly everybody's interested. Um, it's a different, it's very odd for me, because I actually don't, I'm a poet. I mean, I, that's, that's what I think about all the time, that's what I care about, and, and yet suddenly you get a lot of attention for a book that I wrote because I couldn't write any poems. Uh, that's not true, actually. That's not, that's not it's, it's literally true. I went away to Texas and rented this place, uh, had this place for a while, and, and uh, um, was unable to write. And so I began uh, writing these little prose passages to pass the time and they were all about faith. I couldn't stop them from being about faith, and that's how the book started. And then I just, the book sort of accreted over the next uh, seven years, so it was slowly written. But it's true, I mean, it's tremendously poetic and super precise language. You're no Jack Kerouac. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, and it requires reading carefully. Um, I was just, uh, thrilled at some of your, um, the folks that you're mentioning. I mean, you talk about Wallace Stevens, you talk about Cormac McCarthy, all, all of these people. I, I feel like I, I knew Cormac McCarthy before, in, in 1983, I knew his work before anyone had heard of him, and somebody described him as Faulkner with the volume turned up, which is about <laughs> right. But um, uh, just that somebody as well-read as, as you would be exploring the subject of faith this way. I don't know, uh, who, who are you... Uh, talking to about this out there? And that's the first question. And then the second question is, what will you be teaching at Yale Divinity School? Uh, I'm talking to a lot of different, I still get invited to a lot of, uh, to, to poetry-related things or literature, literary things, so they're very secular audiences. And I think they're very curious uh, uh, to talk about faith. I find, I find people are very curious, even if they, uh, um, even if they, feel put off by uh, the, the discussion, you know, the sort of the ironclad kind of way that the discussion is conducted in public in, in this country. Um, I find people, particularly young people, are um, uh, desperate to have some language for their feelings of, of finding, trying to find meaning in their lives and just desperate for it. And so I'm talking to a lot of different people like that. I talked to religious groups that I had never would have been in front of in the past, and that's very gratifying to me, very interesting. Uh, I don't find it combative. And actually, if it is combative, I just shut down. I'm not, uh, it, Marilyn Robinson has another great line from Gilead, where she has a preacher say, nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. Uh, it seems to me very true. These, these arguments that go on uh, uh, between the neo-atheists or what have you, the fundamentalists or what have you, I, they seem to me so boring I can't even, I cannot even pay attention. And um, so the minute it becomes an argument, 
I'm through. Uh, um, so the conversations are, are, you know, they're great. I think uh, there's some other people that I mentioned in that book that you may not ever come across. Fanny Howe is a wonderful novelist, uh, a religious sensibility. She's not necessarily thought of as a religious writer, but, but she's someone who's very great. Those of you who haven't read Marilyn Robinson, uh, she's a very great writer. I think one of the great writers of our time. Um, uh, and uh, especially, especially housekeeping. Richard Wilbur, uh, you probably, those of you, if, if, if you're not familiar with poetry, uh, he would be a great place to start. Oh, he's, gr yeah. he's great. Yeah. He's readable. Yeah, he's very readable. I, I was thinking he's about... He's brilliant and readable. I was thinking about, you, you asked me, how do you know if, you know, when God is calling you? He has these lines, joy's trick is to supply dry lips with what can cool and slake, leaving them dumbstruck also with an ache nothing can satisfy. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, we've, even if you feel like you've never had the call of God, fine. You've probably had the call of joy, of some, some sense of, what, of reality spilling out of its boundaries. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing about that experience is that it leaves you with the feeling of being overwhelmingly happy, joyful, mm -hmm. and yet this seam of sadness woven through it. And, and it, it, it's the moment elegizing itself because we, live in, we sort of live in the past. When you, um, when you talk about Protestant churches depending so much on the preacher, I mean, it, it is, it's interesting because a lot of great Christian uh, writers have tended to be Catholic because I think Catholics have a much more incarnational view of the world. Uh, it's why their churches, at least up until recently, were not ugly. If that's my wife, I'm not here, by the way. <laughs> and... Um, I knew someone who was giving a reading, and they and they their phone went off, and 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 she took you the call. Actually, <laughs> can you imagine actually choosing that ringtone? I don't know. Who that is, but I, I'm sure it's a friend of mine. I know, or a future friend, or, or perhaps now a former friend. But um, I, uh, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, T. S. Eliot. Uh, no, we were talking about this idea of. Um, but, but the idea is that Catholics, I mean, Gerard Manley Hopkins is a, is a, is a great example, uh, but, but they have a less, I, I would say that Protestantism, especially Protestant evangelicalism, falls often into um, this hyper-enlightenment, rationalistic view of reality, ironically, where they think of faith as, I believe this and this and this and this, and you need to believe this and this and this and this, and if you don't, you're out, if you do, you're in, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas... Catholics um, tend to have a more holistic incarnational view. In other words, because of the, the, there's mystery, uh, they, they think that uh, art is important, they think that God uh, is, is in everything. It's, not the, it, it's, it's interesting because you can have heresy in either of those directions, but um, just the poem in your book, um, I can't remember who wrote it, about the grapefruit, who is that? Oh, that's Craig Arnold. Yeah, he was a poet who died. He was, he was a friend of mine, um, um, but it's, that, it's a poem about him having a grapefruit for breakfast. But it's so, yeah. it's so, I mean, I have to say, and folks can get the book just for that poem. It is so great. All he does is describe with exquisite, truly exquisite language uh, what it is to eat a grapefruit. And it doesn't seem, you know, in talking about it now that it's possible to be anything wonderful, but it is so, I don't know if he uses the word opalescent, but uh, his writing is opalescent, and it is just 
so magnificent. But what, the reason I bring that up is because uh, I'm just kind of hungry right now. <laughs> and, uh, but the reason I bring that up seriously is that what is it about that poem? There's nothing overtly or explicitly about anything beyond the world of the grapefruit or this world, but it's some, because it's so precise and beautiful, it somehow seems to point beyond itself to whether it's God or, and it just seems to be luminescent, to point to something transcendent, which I think all good art does. And he's writing about a grapefruit. It's just- Well, that's exactly what I mean by- uh, I finally got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's the perfect example of, of someone who seems to me to have to be living, or have lived, because Craig is dead, uh, um, a kind of spiritual life that had no object. He didn't, I don't, I don't know, I don't think Craig had a religious bone in his body. And, and uh, um, I'm certainly, we never talked about that. And, and that poem, though, just, I mean, ramifies with meaning. It, it, it ends with uh, a little pause, a little emptiness. He described, the whole poem is a, the description of simply cutting and eating a grapefruit, a pause, a little emptiness, uh, each year harder to live within, each year harder to live without. It's beautiful, it's almost Buddhist sense of being inside and outside of a moment. Um, for me, that's why art is absolutely crucial to religious experience because it, those, are with, those are the moments when uh, I experience God. Uh, it, and, and it seems to me a, a poem like that lets me do it, and it's by someone who wasn't himself religious. Hmm. And well, I mean, again, it gets to this division that, you know, if, if it's all about noun and truth and dogma, story can't be just about bullet points. You know, you have to believe these theological tenets. It, some, there's something about story which is, by definition, a process, so you can't nail it down. It's in movement, it's, there's a narrative, there's a passage of time, there's cause and effect, and somehow you can communicate things through art that you can't communicate through creeds. But to say that creed, I mean, there are a lot of people, artists, you know, who would say, well, I just think all creeds are stupid, uh, and it's all about process. And I would say that's as limited as saying that creed is everything and I don't care about your stupid art. Um, and I don't mean specifically <laughs> your stupid art. I mean stupid <laughs> yes, art in general. Yes, I did. You caught me. Um, well, uh, I just, um, I think you didn't uh, answer that second question a while ago about what you'll be teaching at Yale Divinity School. What will you be teaching there since they don't let you talk about God in any real way? This is so the, my, the next chapter of my life. Yeah, I'm teaching it. Uh, I actually work for the Institute of Sacred Music. Um, wow. but I have a dual appointment with the Yale Divinity School, and uh, so it's permanent. That's what I'm going to be doing from now on, and I'm teaching a, just one course this fall called Poetry and Faith, and then in the spring I'm teaching a course called Accidental Theologians, so people who are doing theology by, without meaning to, Flannery O'Connor's letters, or some of these books that I've been mentioning, um, you know, Simone Weil or Fanny Howe, or, uh, um, and in the future, I'm going to pair up with musicians and teach courses. And uh, it's just we're we're inventing it as we go. It's not a position that has existed before. And so I'm inventing the courses, and they're sort of uh, letting me do it. And it's a, it's a I mean I feel incredibly incredibly lucky to be there. Do you believe in luck? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, that's funny. I wish my wife were here. Uh, <laughs> She would like. I'd say it's funny. Well, okay, she just then, reprimanded me for the same damn thing. Before we, uh, 
<laughs> before we, uh, I'm glad I can channel her. Um, before we go, I just want you to, to respond to, uh, you, you realize, of course, that Flannery O'Connor famously said, uh, you know, if the Eucharist is a symbol, then I say, the hell, the hell with it. it. Right. And, uh, and John Updike, and I don't know if it was 1959 or 1960, in his uh, poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, uh, talks about the importance of bodily resurrection, the idea that it actually happened bodily. So here are two artists, uh, in the case of Updike, d definitely wouldn't think of him as any kind of dogmatic Christian, but both of whom are at some point saying that if it's merely metaphor, um, if there's not a hard object, a real thing, that sort of they're saying the hell with it. Um, what, do, what do you make of that side of the, the coin? Oh, wow, this, we're gonna end on this. No, um, <laughs> of course not. Uh, I agree. We're gonna sing. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I find that if I, um, in my own life, if I think of the resurrection just metaphorically, if I think of it as just the church perpetuating into current times, uh, then, um, then yeah, there's not, not much there to Christianity. That you need, you need the bodily resurrection. Um, uh, so that's, that's crazy talk. You understand? <laughs> yeah. You understand? You've just, yeah. you just lost everybody. Can't believe an intelligent person right would at believe the end that. Of, right at the end of it. And the you'd admit it publicly. Talk. Incredible. Charlie Rose was going to have you on, by the way. <laughs> Incredible. Um, well, uh, let me. Let's end here. Let me say this. I think that um, the work you're doing, uh, definitely in this book, and then it sounds wonderfully ongoing at Yale. Uh, is important uh, because uh, almost no one is doing it, uh, being willing to rigorously think these things through. Uh, it's why I love Bonhoeffer, uh, yeah. and I'm happy to know that you uh, know him and love him. And I, even reading through your book, I, I, I felt like it, it's so Bonhoeffer-like because Bonhoeffer was in the same way. You couldn't pin him down as this or this or this or that. He just was... Um, um, I was going to say free spirit, but that's such a horrible cliche. I'd like to think of a nice cliche to end on. Um, it really is interesting to me that so few people are doing the kind of work you're, you're doing. And I think it's why um, so many folks want to read Bonhoeffer's work, because there just isn't a lot of it out there. So um, maybe I can close by uh, thanking you for, for writing this book, which is just spectacular, and uh, somehow I, I'd like to have you back on the show, but it's not a show. So, but I'd like to uh, I'd like to have you back uh, um, because there is so much to talk about. I mean, in the book, I you know underlined so much. There's so much else I want to talk to you about, but um, we'll we'll end it there. Before you applaud, uh, let me say that um, as soon as we're done. Um, Christian will hang around to sign copies of his books at that table. Um, please um, be orderly uh, because uh, I know many of you are going to want to get your books signed. The, the rest of us uh, can skip upstairs uh, to the dinner. I hope you, you will. We'll be starting pretty quickly, um, so uh, don't, uh, don't linger too long uh, down here. We'll be getting uh, started pretty quickly. And I can say that I think there'll be food already plated. Feel free 
to eat it. We'll just assume you've prayed quietly. And, uh, but feel free to start eating because we won't have time uh, to, to, to begin things officially. Um, we really do, uh, I really do mean it that I'd love to have you back. I think that uh, very few people are having conversations, anything like this, and it's important for us to explore. So I want to applaud you again for bravely exploring these themes, and maybe we can literally applaud you right now. Thank you. Thank you.